Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. My guest today is a fellow cohort in crime. We've been working together side by side in the New Testament department literally for three decades plus. Dan Wallace, thank you for oh, joining us. I'm glad us. to be here, Daryl, even though it's with you. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, our wives will take care of us That's later, right? right? So, um, and they'll ask, how did it go? Um, but we're here to discuss New Testament manuscripts and New Testament uh, and, and really the, the reliability of the New Testament text. And Dan, besides working here at Dallas Seminary as a professor in New Testament, um, uh, what's your other independent role? I'll, I'll let you describe the organization and the role that you have in it. I'm the founder and executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, which is a real mouthful, but you can remember it if you know who C.S. Lewis is. You got mm -hmm. the first two initials, C.S. And if you've ever watched Wizard of Oz, you know who Auntie M is. So CS Auntie M. There you go. Okay. <laughs> and uh, csntm.org is, is the website. Uh, it's been in existence since 2002 and a nonprofit organization that has a primary goal of digitizing every single Greek New Testament manuscript in the world and putting the images on our website. So you literally run around the world taking pictures of manuscripts. Yes, sir. And uh, so uh, let's, oh, that's the kind of the current side of the story. Let's back it up to the start. Okay. How did a good California boy like <laughs> you end up doing this? Well, when I got done surfing and playing football, uh, I had a radical commitment to Christ that I made when I was 16 hmm. and decided at that point I will go into full-time vocational ministry. And I started sharing the gospel on Coast Highway, which is the one that runs up and down the coast from Mexico to, to Canada, uh, picking up hitchhikers, passing out New Testaments. And I'd pick these New Testaments up. I'd buy them for 25 cents a piece, paperbacks, buy them by the box load from uh, a, a fellow uh, that had a real estate office. He had a huge billboard over his real estate office that said, Jesus saves. Hmm. So I figured, well, this guy must be a Christian. So I'd go down there, get today's English version from him. And he'd talk about how Jesus was not God. And that really disturbed my faith. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to make this commitment to Christ, I sure hope he's worth it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so we'd have these dialogues back and forth, and it really convinced me that I needed to know more about what's going on in the New Testament. So I went to Biola College and studied under Harry Sturz, who was a great textual critic, learned Greek grammar from him, textual criticism, and a little bit about exegesis there, but I decided I'm going to devote a large part of my career to working with manuscripts hmm. and working with Greek grammar. Hmm. Now, uh, you use the phrase textual criticism, which some people, of course, will be familiar with, but other people will have no clue what that means. I mean, are you critical of the New Testament text? Come on now. Um, so so in, a, in a very lay kind of way, explain what text criticism is. For well, people. the word criticism simply means research. Mm -hmm. And textual criticism is the discipline that has as its primary goal to ascertain the wording of an original document that no longer exists or can no longer be found. 
We apply it to all ancient literature. We apply it to a lot of modern literature, including uh, the Gettysburg Address. We don't have what Lincoln wrote. We have five secretaries that wrote down what he said, and they all have differences among them. Hmm. With the New Testament, the originals disappeared within a century of writing. They were probably copied so much that they just wore out. And all of the manuscripts have differences between them. So we have to do textual criticism to try to ascertain the wording of the original. So you're looking at the at the variations in the wording and trying to make sense based upon the various sources that they're coming from, uh, which wording is likely to be uh, the most reflective of the original or reflective you, you, of the original. You define it pretty well. Okay, yeah, that's well. Um, you uh, know a little about, about uh, the New just, Testament, I guess. Just, just a touch. <laughs> Every now and then I wake up and look at my New Testament. Uh, and um, so, uh, so, so, so you've um, really spent your life doing text critical work and and taking pictures of these uh, manuscripts. I've got about three different directions I want to go, and I'm actually trying to decide which way I want to go. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about what that involves, uh, the picture taking that's involved, the kind of equipment that you're using, um, the what it takes to get permission. I know that there's stories there. Um, uh, yeah, let's. What is it? What is it? Let's say you're going to Athens. What does that involve? Well, first or of what all, what did it involve? It, it it involves years of talking to people and shooting at other places. We started at not so consequential in, uh, uh, institutes that would allow us to shoot there, build a really good reputation of always maintain that manuscript, never hurt any manuscript. That's our first task. And as our reputation built up, then more and more places would be interested. Uh, in 2014, September 2014, we were invited to go to the National Library of Athens National Library of Greece in Athens and meet the director and the and the uh, uh, director of the of the board, uh, or the chairman of the board, and we gave a presentation uh, to them. Halfway through the presentation, they stopped us and said, "Okay, we want you to shoot our manuscripts. How soon can you start?" Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, it's going to take some time to raise the money." You can pop out your iPhone and just get started. There you go. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's the caliber of pictures we take. Right? <laughs> we bring state of the art equipment to mm-hmm. these sites, and it. We said we can maybe start in May, but we're going to have to raise a lot of money. And this, the whole project cost nearly a million dollars. It took uh, two years to do. Mm-hmm. And I spent uh, 100 days in Athens, over 100 days in 2015 alone. Uh, I, I'd live there for three or four weeks and then come home. Uh, and sometimes I'd speak somewhere in the country and then fly back, but always w- visit my wife for a little bit so mm-hmm. she'd be happy about that. But. Uh, I was preparing the manuscripts for photography. It takes uh, two or three hours to prepare each manuscript to be photographed. Hmm. And then the teams would come in in, in, for the whole summer of 2015 and 16 and other times of the year. We trained 45 people to Hmm. shoot their manuscripts. They have 300 Greek New Testament manuscripts. A manuscript, by definition, is a handwritten document that's not based on a printed document. Mm -hmm. And so typically we're talking about second through the uh, 16th century. Uh, they don't have any second century ones, but they've got plenty of manuscripts, 300 of them, 150,000 pages of manuscripts to digitize. Hmm. And we have uh, state-of-the-art equipment that is 50 megapixel cameras where the images are 300 megabytes apiece. Three of them equal a gigabyte. They're, hmm. they're huge. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, not only do we have those uh, images, but we shoot them on what's called the Graz Travelers Conservation Copy Stand, designed in Graz, Austria, by a manuscript professor, so that these things hold manuscripts. They're designed specifically to shoot manuscripts. They hold them open at 105 degrees, no more. They have exact distances for the camera, exact lighting, all this. And if you want to shoot manuscripts uh, in Europe today, you'd better have one of these, hmm. and, and we have four. Hmm. Uh, they're very expensive, and he makes them by hand for every institute that uh, wants them. So trained 45 people, seven to eight were working there uh, each summer full-time, and I was working there during the summers as well as other times. But so you said, you said prepare the <clears throat> manuscripts and that that takes a couple of hours. What I mean, I, I've, I've seen you handle manuscripts with gloves and be very, very careful about how the manuscripts are handled, but what does preparation of a manuscript require? Well, first of all, on gloves, a few years ago, it has been determined that gloves are not the best way to handle manuscripts. We used to think that. Uh But University of Michigan and some other sites said, no, handle them with clean hands. Make sure you didn't have Cheetos for lunch. (laughs) And, uh, you know, if if somebody sneezed, they'd go and wash their hands. So it's a a lot more work. But gloves can actually snag the pages. Hmm. And so they said, no gloves, uh, just really clean hands. So that's how we do it now. But uh, what it takes to to prepare a manuscript, the first and most important thing is to count how many pages are in there. Hmm. And if I have 271 pictures on the right side, I'd better have 271 on the left side. Mm-hmm. So I count them. Now, most manuscripts, they're already numbered mm-hmm. uh, by, by the leaf. It's just the right page is, mm-hmm. is numbered. And most of the time, that numbering is off at some point. Hmm. Either leaves stick together or they wrote the same page twice, the same leaf number twice. And so I list what is actually written on the leaf, and then I list how how it's to be corrected. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also count as a leaf anything that has at least one half of a letter on it. Mm -hmm. That counts as a leaf for our purposes. So we have to shoot that Mm -hmm. without shooting the leaf behind it. It's really tricky to do that. But uh, I count the leaves, I um, I count how many lines are per page, the dimensions, the height, uh, the width, and even the depth, which is how thick that manuscript is uh, if it's laying down, not counting the covers, looking at the bottom, and looking at the top. And what's fascinating is uh, about 95% of all manuscripts, they're a little bit thicker on the top than they are the bottom. We, Hmm. We do it by way of centimeters. But every once in a while, you get the bottom that is wider than the top, and that usually means that that manuscript was stored upside down for more than half its life. Oh, wow. Because uh, they fan out. You know, when you mm-hmm. pull a book off the shelf, it fans out on the top. And mm-hmm. these didn't have any names on the spine. So hmm. got a thousand-year-old manuscript that's been stored upside down for 600 years. That's, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty amazing. <laughs> what are you doing disturbing me, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and we look at the material. I, I date the manuscript, and I do a scripture index where each book of the New Testament starts. So those are some of the things I do. Okay. And then you talked about the, the requirement of the – what I think you said – was it 50 um, – 50 megapixels. 50 megapixels. Um, why do you need that much detail? What are you able to do in order to figure out what's going on? Because I imagine some of the writing is tricky in terms of being able to read it. Is that what you're trying to deal with? There's, there's all sorts of issues that uh, go on with these manuscripts. At first, I thought all we need are cameras good enough to tell us uh, differences in handwriting of purposeful uh, uh, changes, but it's more than that. Uh, if you have old microfilms, they will not show 
the lines where uh, scribes would not draw lines while we, like we have uh, uh, lined paper. They, mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't do that. But they took a, a blunt instrument and they, they indented the lines and they traced or they wrote the letters out uh, beneath that line or sitting on it. And that actually tells you whether it's sitting on the line or hanging from the line what the date is. The 10th century is the cutoff. If it's mm. hanging from the line, it's later sitting on it, it's earlier. Mm. You couldn't tell that on older pictures. Mm-hmm. And uh, consequently, you need very good pictures to help date the manuscript. Interesting. Just that alone. And then there's erasures. There's marginal notes where the scribe writes in really tiny letters and all sorts of uh, things that tell us, uh, is this the what's called the hair side or the flesh side? Hair side is the outside of the animal skin. Mm-hmm. And they scrape that as clean as they can. But you can see the hair follicles there hmm. if, if you got good enough pictures. Interesting. And um, – uh, is there a way to to see if there's anything behind anything or anything like that, or um, what what does that involve? Yeah, the, a manuscript that has uh, been reused by a later scribe is called a palimpsest. Mm-hmm. They scrape off the original writing and then they'll write something else later on it. Sometimes it's a whole manuscript. Frequently, it's just a couple of leaves in a manuscript. So, a scribe is say he's writing out uh, the Gospels. And he comes to the end of John's gospel, and he gets through John 19. He says, I don't have enough leaves for the rest. I can go kill a goat, scrape the darn thing, and (laughs) and tan it, and uh, skin it, and make it really uh, fine uh, parchment. Or I can just cannibalize this older manuscript that nobody's read in a few centuries. I mean, look at it. It's upside down. Mm -hmm. So so they could do that. And so we get a lot of manuscripts that are done that way. Now, Charlemagne prohibited that. He said, Mm -hmm. no more of this kind of stuff. But they still continue to do that, and we find manuscripts like that. In order to see that undertext, though, which has been erased or scraped off, you need UV light at least, which is it, it helps you to see some of it. But the best way to do it is with multispectral imaging, which takes the whole gamut of the uh, spectrum. Uh, we don't have multispectral imaging equipment yet, but we're raising the money to get that right now. Hmm. So that's that's not. I take it that piece of equipment's not particularly cheap. No. <laughs> the UV lights are like $1,500 a piece for professional grade, and the MSI is about $125,000. Wow. Um, let's, let's talk about one other feature here that's kind of uh, just descriptive, and that is the kind of materials that are written on. So you've got, you're taking pictures of manuscripts. What kinds of things are you taking pictures of? The materials are of three sorts, papyri, parchment, or paper. Mm-hmm. And they, for the most part, go in that uh, – direction in terms of the age. Our earliest manuscripts are all on papyrus, which is an ancient uh, kind of paper made from the papyrus reed that grew on the edge of the Nile. And they would take strips of it and uh, lay it down. It's got real uh, long fibers, and these things would grow very, very tall. They'd lay these strips down diagonally and beat it with, with a mallet, and the, the uh, sap from the papyrus would naturally adhere to the other so they could make long rolls of this stuff. Uh, and so that was the writing that was used for our earliest manuscripts. Then parchment became uh, of use starting in the third century, really. But when we get about to the fourth century, that's when most of the manuscripts begin to be on parchment. That's animal skins. Uh, could be a goat, could be a deer, a lamb, uh, cows. There's a, a library in Florence, the uh, uh, Medici uh, library that uh, the Medici family owned, and they had Michelangelo design it. It's the only library he ever designed. Hmm. And he had in this library on the floor pictures of skulls of cows. 
Hmm. And in the in the ceiling, it mirrored that. And we asked when we shot there, we said, well, "Why why did he do this? To honor the cows who gave their lives to produce the manuscripts. Oh, wow. That's what he did that for. Hmm. So parchment comes from animal skins, and then later, starting in about the tenth century, just a trickle of them, we get manuscripts on paper when uh, it came from China through Egypt and then through the rest of Europe. It uh, it was used, but even our some of our latest manuscripts are on parchment. That's that's the most durable material. But it's also the one where sometimes it's hardest to read because the kind of ink they had to use on parchment was iron gall. It's iron-based, and that adheres to the parchment, but it also rusts. And you've got parchment that may start out as kind of white, and it turns brown. Mm -hmm. And this ink that starts out as black, and it turns brown. So you got brown on brown, <laughs> which, ironically, the parchment manuscripts may be a thousand years later than the papyri. but. The papyri are often more legible than the parchment. Interesting. Um, I think that's all the the overview questions I want to ask, and just kind of the process of uh, of doing this. Now, we're we're used to hearing things like this. Uh, the New Testament has hundreds of thousands of variants. How can we even have any clue or idea what the New Testament text is? Is a way of undercutting. The idea that the Bible that I have in my hands is not necessarily the Bible that that I that that existed originally, or, or even some people even question whether you can even frame the question that way. So, so help us through that morass. Um, uh, I, I take it that you've. I mean, I haven't asked. I didn't actually ask you how many manuscripts you've actually photographed. I'm assuming you have at least a ballpark number for what that is. I forgot what it is. It's. Um... I know it's about 500,000 pages so far, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what the number of manuscripts Interesting. is. Interesting. So, um, and and do you, are there certain collections that you haven't gotten to yet that you're still seeking to get to? Oh, you yeah. <laughs> Most of them. Right. There's about two and a half million pages of Greek New Testament manuscripts, which means if we've only photographed 20 percent, it's great job security for me. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been to 40 different countries, mm-hmm. and we've got – there's manuscripts in over 250 different sites. Mm-hmm. Around the world. Okay. Well, I almost forgot to ask that set of questions, and I just popped in my head. So, uh, so let me turn back to the morass. Um, so, uh, you know, so we have a lot of people who claim that we really can't trust the text that we have. How do you, how do you help people think through and negotiate that kind of a question? Well, I, I, there's a few different responses I give to that. First of all. If we only had one manuscript of the New Testament, we'd have no textual variants at all. Since every manuscript, by definition, is a handwritten document by frail, uh, mistake-ridden human beings. Non-Xerox machines. Non-Xerox, yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's going to be mistakes. Our two closest manuscripts have between six and ten uh, – of the first eight centuries, they have between six and ten differences per chapter. Mm-hmm. So when you start thinking about that with all these manuscripts, there's going to be a lot of differences. It is quite correct to say we have hundreds of thousands of textual differences among the manuscripts. But when you begin to look at it in detail, you begin to realize uh, you count a, a, a textual difference if even a single manuscript has a spelling difference mm-hmm. from another one. And I, I did an, uh, an experiment uh, a few years ago where I wrote out how many ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek. Mm-hmm. 
it took me about eight hours, mm-hmm. and I came up with 350, 384 ways to say John loves Mary in Greek. And then I decided, I know there's about another 150, but that, that's enough to prove the point. Now, here's the, the, the way this relates to us. Bart Ehrman, in his Misquoting Jesus, says, there are so many variants that we could go on practically talking about them forever, and yet we wouldn't get done with them. They're, they're not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands. Well, he's right. But the vast majority of them are of that sort that you can't even translate the differences. Hmm. There's different ways to spell John, different ways to spell Mary. You can put it in a different word order. Same verb, 384 ways I, I produced. And uh, I've shown that every time when I get So this is a this. way of saying don't be fooled by the large number, basically. Exactly. Okay. Now, when you actually think about these variants, the other thing I would say is people who make this claim have not compared it to Greco-Roman literature. Mm -hmm. We have maybe half a dozen manuscripts for the average classical author. And let's say we had as many as 15 manuscripts for the average classical Greek author that that still exist. You stack those up, they'd be about four feet high. Mm -hmm. If you stack up the New Testament manuscripts, the Greek ones as well as uh, early translations, which all count as manuscripts into Latin and Coptic and Syriac and Georgian and Gothic and Ethiopic and all that. It'll be about uh, a mile and a quarter high, hmm. four feet versus a mile and a quarter. So we have a lot more manuscripts than they do. We have an embarrassment of riches, and they have a dearth of evidence. But besides that, the average classical author, we're waiting 500 to 1,000 years before we even see one copy. Mm-hmm. For the New Testament manuscripts, we're waiting a mere two or three decades, and then we get our first copy. And then from there, we get uh, more and more copies all the time that produces that stack. Right. Um, so, so the uh, let me let me go back to the to the number here. There are substantial, and we're coming up to a break. Um, there are substantial number of variants that just are what I would call transparent. You know, there you've reversed a letter, you've misspelled a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there are differences in word order in which the same thing is being said. You've already made that point. And, and what I've heard say is just kind of a generalized rule of thumb is a vast majority of the variants that we're dealing with are of that type. Exactly. Most of them can't be translated. The largest single group is spelling differences that affect nothing. And uh, I'd say over 99%, in fact, well over 99% of all of our texture variants are either not meaningful, that is, they don't affect the meaning of the text, or not viable, that is, they don't have any likelihood of going back to the original, or both. Okay. I often like to say to people, um, uh, it really is amazing everything that goes into the fact that you're able to have a Bible in your hands. If you just think through the history of transmission of manuscripts, the people who dedicated themselves to copying you know, those texts in other languages, a word at a time, a letter at a time, a line at a time, however you want to think about it, um, a lot of people's love and labor goes into the fact that we're able to hold and read a New Testament text. Absolutely. It's amazing that we have any copies at all, and yet the church has been so faithful over the centuries. This is what has profoundly impacted me in looking at at hundreds of thousands of pages of manuscripts is the dedication that these scribes had to copying the Word of God. And there's what's called a colophon. It's a personal note that a scribe often puts at the end of a manuscript. And there's one that happens uh, on occasion uh, that I had the opportunity to see when I was in Athens a couple years ago. The scribe wrote, the hand that wrote this is rotting in the grave 
but the words that are written will last until the fullness of times. And it was dated A.D. 1079. I'm looking at this manuscript mm-hmm. that's over a thousand years, and I said, yep, I'm sure he's writing, and yep, <laughs> this thing is still here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. Well, we were talking about the nature of significant uh, differences here, and I'm actually not entirely sure how to get into this question, but I think the way I want to do it is this way. Um, is there are real issues of translation and meaning in the New Testament that text critics and people who work with the text have to wrestle with. And probably the most obvious way that most people encounter these are a little side note and they get in mm-hmm. their translations that say, or, or some manuscripts manuscript yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, so what's normally going on when that kind of a thing is happening? Well, what the translators are telling the reader is that they're not certain about what the original wording is, typically. Mm. Other times they're saying there has been a tradition that has been found, especially in the King James Bible, that we are rejecting, but there are some manuscripts that have this, or typically it's the late majority of manuscripts. But there's a lot of places that are actually like that that do affect the meaning and are viable, that is, it could go back to the original. Now, the impact of this for some people when they initially hear it can be, well, then maybe we really don't know the content of the New Testament, and so can I, you know, can I be confident this is the, the text that was, was written? How do, you, how do you help people sort through that part of the question? Well, I quote uh, Bart Ehrman, the famous Orthodox scholar, uh, who, who was a, st- a student under uh, – That was tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, that was. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, Bart's been a longtime friend. Right. Uh, and uh, he studied under Bruce Metzger at Princeton Seminary. In 2005, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus about how the Bible has changed over the centuries. And I think it was his agenda to show that – uh, Orthodox scribes changed the text to make it conform more to what they wanted it to say. But in, in, in the summer of 2006, the uh, publishers put in an, an appendix that had uh, – they, they wanted to kind of beef up the sales, so they put it in, in a paperback edition. And one of the questions they asked him in there, just to get people to look at this appendix and, oh, I want to buy this book, was, why do you disagree with your mentor, Bruce Metzger, about uh, cardinal doctrines being changed in the original New Testament from, from these scribes who came along later? He said, I actually don't agree with Dr. Metzger. No essential doctrine. Don't is, disagree, you mean? I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't yeah. disagree. Thank yeah, you very right, much. Yeah, that's that's yeah. kind of important. Yeah. That's a textual variant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't disagree with Dr. Mesker. There is no cardinal doctrine that is jeopardized by any of these variants. And that's on page 252 of the paperback version of Misquoting Jesus. So, the, the, so here's the issue, if I can try and boil it down. You can tell me if I've summarized this well. There are discussions about what particular texts mean and whether they are saying X or Y, but when you put it all together and you put it against what is regarded as orthodoxy, the issue becomes how many passages make that point as opposed to the idea of we've got completely different theologies at work here. That's exactly right. Uh, Kenneth W. Clark wrote an article about 65 years ago in which he tried to argue that doctrines are affected by the, the textual variants. But all he could show was that that doctrine might not be taught in this passage, even though it's taught in this one, this one, and this one. Take, for example, the deity of Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.16, the King James says, God, who was revealed or manifest in the flesh, 
modern translations, instead of having God say who was manifest or revealed in the flesh. In Greek, the difference is really a single letter. It's either the word theos, the word God, written as two letters, I won't get into the, the whole issue there, or hos, the word. There's uh, an abbreviation. Word for, yeah, it's an abbreviation. Yeah. That, that summarizes it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're here. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, but the difference in what, you, what a scribe would actually see is just a line through that uh, first letter, which makes it a theta, or if it's not there, an omicron. And uh, so, certain King James-only people say, you see these modern translations uh, are rejecting the deity of Christ. Well, they're not doing anything of the sort. What they're doing is representing what the early manuscripts say. To say who was revealed in the flesh is not a denial of the deity of Christ. It's just not an explicit affirmation of the deity of Christ. Yeah, why would you say revealed in the flesh unless there isn't something else going on about the person? Bingo. Yeah. yeah. It's still implicit. Right. And in John 1.18, the unique one himself, God, that's what many modern translations have. I think it's the right reading instead of the only begotten son that the King James has. So, you know, you take away from one group of manuscripts, but you give with another. And D.A. Carson wrote a book in 1979 on uh, the King James Version debate where he gave a chart of affirmations of the deity of Christ. He said most modern translations actually affirm the deity of Christ more than the King James. But you don't have manuscripts that say, Jesus is not God. Right. There's nothing that does that. It's either an affirmation or not an affirmation, but it's not a denial. And, the, and, and of course, the other part of this is, is that the question may be, how, you know, I might have 25 – This I'm grabbing numbers out of the air – I might have 25 passages that say it this way versus 22 or 23. Exactly. Yeah. But and, it, it never gets reduced down to zero. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay, well, that's that's certainly an interesting thing. Now, we do have some examples of blocks of material that get discussed, uh, the most famous of which being the end of Mark, uh, a section, the Procope Adultere in, in John, uh, two of the more famous ones I could we could go on. but that, They are the two more yeah. famous. <laughs> and, and so, so the question here is, um, how does that how – do, how do we think that happened? Well, you, there's two passages that are more than two verses long that are major textual variants that have uh, uh, impacted the church's thinking because of emotional baggage to these texts. The first is Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, and the second one, the story of the woman caught in adultery, is John 7, 53 through 8, 11. In Mark 16, if the gospel ends at verse 8, it says that an angel appeared to the women and told them to go tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee, and they did nothing, for they were afraid, period, end of the gospel. What great news that is. You know? yeah, right, right. Uh, it looks like a downer. There's no resurrection appearance by Jesus if the gospel ends there. He's still raised from the dead, as mm-hmm. the angel tells the, right. the women that that's the case. But is he, is he seen by the disciples? So I think early scribes wanted to put in an ending to say, absolutely, they did see him. And so we have four or five different endings that were added to that. It's not just those 12 verses that we find in the King James, and modern translations will have them, but they'll either put it in brackets or smaller font, or uh, they'll put in a footnote saying ancient authorities don't have this, the most ancient don't. But when you look at the style uh, of the uh, wording, you look at the vocabulary, the syntax, the theological viewpoint, uh, it doesn't match with Mark's Plus the gospel. very fact that you've got so many variations seems to indicate right. something's going on. Right. right. Um, uh, and, and so 
uh, it's interesting because the way you explained it is is the kind of the open endedness of the mark and ending, which which uh, troubles some people. It still troubles some people today when they make the arguments about the what to do with these various endings that we have to deal with. Uh, the way I like to resolve that one is to say, well, you know, there's a there's a theme running through the middle part of Mark where God reveals Himself, and you either fear or you believe. And you come to this ending that's kind of open-ended. We've got the declaration of the resurrection. We've got the empty tomb. We've got those elements. And now I, I call this you make the you make the call part of the New Testament. Exactly. You know? yeah. um, and that's how Mark's ending. What are you going to do with this? I've got you've got an empty tomb. You've got witnesses to an empty tomb. You've got a declaration that Jesus is raised from the dead. What are you going to do with this? I think that's exactly what Mark's doing. There's some who would say. We've, we've, the ending that Mark actually wrote is lost, uh, but others who'd say, no, he intended to end it here. And I think his intention is to get the readers to put themselves in, in the sandals of the disciples. And now, what am I going to do with Jesus? Mm-hmm. If I want to accept him in his glory the way Peter did in his confession of Jesus as the Christ, I must also accept him in his suffering, and I must carry my cross daily and follow him. And that's what Mark, I think, is doing is you're persecuted Christians. You've got to own this, not just read this and casually be a Christian. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you really better follow him, and that includes suffering. And the other thing I like to say about an ending like this is is that because people are sensitive to this and they do print the alternatives in the margin or, or make you aware of them, it isn't like you're unaware of what the choices may be, and then when you actually look at the content of what's been added, um, the content of what's been added actually shows up elsewhere in the New Testament so that whether you have it or don't, in one sense, again, in the big picture, doesn't really make much difference. Exactly. Yeah, and so it's, it, it affects how you read that passage. Mm-hmm. Is Mark trying to get the, the, the readers to uh, come to conclusions about Jesus themselves, or is he giving them the information? But it doesn't affect the overall theology of the New Testament at all. And the John 7 one is a tricky one because it shows up uh, not just in the place where it's landed in John, that may signal what we may think about it, um, but it also shows up in other places, which tells you it's if I can describe it this way, it's a floating piece of tradition. Exactly. Um, and uh, and some people think if you read John carefully, it breaks up what's going on in John by having it where it is. Uh, uh, other people, you know, will try and make a case for well, it may have landed. If I can say it this way, in the place where we have it in John as the as the prominent, most visible landing point, uh, but it's still as a floating piece of tradition looks like something that may well be uh, something Jesus did and said. It's a floating tradition which probably suggests that John didn't write it. That alone is not a reason for it, but it, it, there's three different places in John 7 that it occurs. It occurs in some manuscripts between Luke and John as just an isolated pericope. Sometimes it occurs after the, all the Gospels. In some manuscripts, it occurs after Luke 2138. Yeah, that's the one I'm familiar with. And uh, mm. that group of manuscripts, I think, probably picks the right spot for it. There uh-huh. was a, a recent article written by a, a Dallas Seminary graduate, Kyle Hughes, that argued that Luke had access to a form of this story, not exactly the shape that it ended up in, but it looks like his kind of material, his wording, vocabulary, syntax, this kind of thing, but it's not the full story. So 
I, I would say that there was, this gets a little complicated, but it was a conflation between East and West, two different uh, areas that came up with a story in its current form that we have in our New Testaments. And uh, they, they, they occurred in different forms where Luke had a, a more vanilla kind of a story. This woman was caught in some sin. You don't have the Pharisees peeling out from the oldest to the youngest. And Luke probably didn't include it because it wasn't all that significant or interesting. Mm. But uh, it has the earmarks of historicity. And we need to make a distinction between whether something is canonical and whether it's historical. Is it inspired? Did that uh, a, a biblical author write this? Or is it just historical? And those are two different questions. I'd say the story of the woman caught in adultery is my favorite passage that's not in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the basic theme it teaches is that Jesus forgives sin. Is this the only passage we have that teaches that? Well, if it is, then we're all in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole lot more passages that do that. Yeah, it, il it illustrates some things pretty powerfully. And then, of course, we we could, but we won't go here. But it's a question that does hang over this conversation, and that is, you know, the view of the fact that this has been a part of the passing on of Scripture for as long as it has. That actually applies to lots of texts, but this one is probably one of the more prominent ones to which that question um, gets pursued. Uh, and, and so I, I point to these examples because they illustrate something. The, the point that we're trying to get at is we're asking the question, what was an original part of Scripture? And an awareness of variance lets us know what the possibilities are. I like to say, you know, sometimes when you hear this conversation, the idea is, well, we have maybe 95% of our Bible or 98%, whatever percentage you want to put on it. And the way I like to spin this is, and I'm sp I am spinning it, is to say the problem is not that we have less of the Bible than we ought to have. The problem is we have too much. Right. And we're trying to work our way back to what was the original what was the original, and the variants are the pileups that, exactly. that, that give yeah. us the too much. And yet, what's fascinating about the New Testament is that over time, like a snowball that rolls down a hill, it's going to pick up alien elements, it doesn't actually pick up that much. In the 1,400 years of copying the New Testament, it grows by about 2%. Hmm. Any economist would say, that's not a good investment. 2 percent over 1,400 years, you're not going to make a lot of money that way. <laughs> so your point is, is that you've got the core plus a little bit, a little right. bit on top. Right. Uh, now, um, let's, let's talk about the manuscript part of this. We've got two parts of this discussion that are left, at least in my head. Um, one of them is um, uh, the amount of manuscripts that we have, the relative earlier lightness of those manuscripts. So a lot of people will come along and they will say, well, you know, yeah, we've got these thousands of, you know, more than, what is it now? It's over 5,800 Greek yes. manuscripts that we have. We've got, you know, what is it? Uh, I think it's around 8,000 plus of the Vulgate. That, uh, Even over 10,000. It's over 10,000, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. so, so, so you got a lot of manuscripts. But but we're fudging, okay? Uh, we don't have that many early, early manuscripts. Most of those are 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th century. Mm -hmm. And and so so you're making it look better than it is. Uh, if and, and I've seen articles written recently that work pretty hard to try and figure out what exactly do we have that, that comes from, say, earlier than 400. Um, and, uh, and and raise the question in that kind of a way. Now, this is a little more sophisticated kind of issue in question, but how, how does one respond to the idea that, well, we got lots of manuscripts, but we don't have a lot of them that are extremely early? 
I think that is a significant question. If we had 50,000 manuscripts and they're all from the 14th century or later, that's going to be a problem. What we have, though, is a continuity from the second century on, and I, I've figured out the numbers that we have as many, at least as, as far as have been published today, a dozen manuscripts from the second century, and by uh, 300, before the Council of Nicaea, we have as many as 65 manuscripts. By 400, we have about 120 manuscripts. We have the whole New Testament duplicated several times over by 400. Mm -hmm. Now, compare that to the average classical Greek or Latin author, and we've got nothing mm -hmm. 400 years later. So when you compare it to these other writings, the New Testament shines so much better. Nobody uh, in their right mind would ever say the New Testament is worse off than the others. On top of that, I think here's another significant uh, factor to keep in mind. That is, in the last 130 years, that's when all the papyri have been discovered and, and published, about 138 of them, something like that right now. Not a single wording from any of these earliest manuscripts has been a new wording that we've not seen before and we now think that's the original. So yes, there, there's going to be some unusual wording. Sometimes it changes from what we have from other manuscripts. But it hasn't changed what we think the original is in that here's a brand new variant that we've never seen before. We have to publish this as a text. What the papyri do is they confirm the later manuscripts from the 4th century and the 5th century especially. And they say, now we have more evidence that what that manuscript said is right. But it doesn't give us a brand new variant that we've never seen before. So the point that you're making here is, is that – and actually if you think about the way copying worked. Uh, this makes sense. The reason you make copies is because older copies wear out. I mean, you, you, people are using them, they're going to get used up. Right. And so uh, so they're wearing out. So what we're, we're actually ending up being able to trace, and the advantage we have of having so many that come later is, it helps us to understand the, the quality and the nature of what, we, what came earlier that led to those copies being made. Right. And you could take, for example, a uh, very interesting parallel between Papyrus number 75 and Codex Vaticanus. P75, early 3rd century, about 225 AD 225, Vaticanus about 350. P75 only has Luke and John, not even completely. Vaticanus has almost the whole New Testament in it. Now, those two manuscripts are the most closely related manuscripts we have of the first 800 years of the Christian era. Hmm. And yet, we know that Vaticanus is not a copy of P75 because some of the wording that we see in Vaticanus is actually prior to what we have in P75. That tells us that both of them go back to an ancestor that's very deep in the second century, probably the first or second decade of the second century. And so that early papyrus, which is enormously important, is something that uh, confirms the wording that we have in Vaticanus. So when this is all said and done, you're, you're saying that the, we can have a lot of confidence that the wording that we have in the New Testament is um, very reflective of what originally was written. Absolutely. I'd say in all essential respects, we have the Word of God in our hands today, and in the vast majority of particulars, we do as well. Now, uh, I'm going to turn here at the end. It really is its own topic, but um, to make this point, because sometimes people think when you've had that discussion, you're done with the discussion of the reliability of the text. But of course, saying that you have the exact wording 
isn't an evaluation of the actual content of right. what you have. So that's so a different discussion. That's right. a completely different discussion. And sometimes when people engage in a conversation about textual criticism and they think they've defended the reliability of the wording of the text, they equate that with defending the reliability of the New Testament. But there's actually a whole other layer of yeah. conversation. That's a that historical comes after question, that. not not a textual question. Exactly right. So so that's an important thing to say at the end of this that that we are confident about the wording that we have. We know we know what we're dealing with. But then the next question becomes, all right, what about the contents of what that is saying? And there are all kinds of other um, discussions and issues that rotate around those – that are part of those conversations that actually then uh, complete the discussion about what the reliability of the New Testament's all about. Right. They go in tandem, I think. That's, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Well, Aldean is uh, – we've got about two minutes left. Um, anything else that we haven't covered that you think we should say or, or – or, or let me let me ask you this question. If someone's interested in contributing to your effort there uh, at the center, what, what do they do? They simply go to CSNTM, as I said, uh, C.S. Lewis and NTM of uh, Wizard of Oz fame, csntm.org, and there's a donate page. It's a nonprofit 401c, uh, and so you can make a contribution that's tax deductible. We need a lot of funds to get all these manuscripts digitized. Hmm. Well, I do appreciate you taking the time to come in uh, and be a part of this. It's been it, it's been a fun fun to watch this from a from kind of a spectator seat yeah. and watch the center develop and watch your work develop and all that you do. I, I think there's a right uh, a really lack of appreciation for uh, not only what you're doing but what people who have tried to preserve the text have done over all the centuries. You have a you have a great pedigree that you represent, Absolutely. and uh, and we really do appreciate you coming in. And I do hope that you've got a sense, as we've talked about this, about uh, how trustworthy the text is, that some of these numbers are exaggerations, that the differences that we're talking about are differences in particularities but not differences in the whole, uh, all those kinds of things that feed into what the New Testament is about. So thank you, Dan, for coming in and being a part of the conversation. Oh, thanks, Gerald. It's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> and we thank you all for being a part of the table. We hope you'll uh, join us again soon, and we look forward to uh, having you be with us. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.